Now, if someone were to ask you what your Mount Rushmore of biblical books would be, your four favorite books of the Bible, I doubt any of you would have had Lamentations on there. May not have even made your top 10, may not have even made your top 50, I'm not sure. And I can understand why. I was talking with somebody this past week and they came to me and said, Caleb, how, how many more sermons do we have in the, uh, in the series? I thought the question was out of excitement, anticipation that it was going to continue to go. I said, well, there's only one more week. And they go, whew. <laughs> I can understand the sentiment. It's a heavy book. It's a sobering book. If you've been with us these last four weeks, maybe here for the first time uh, this week, we've been walking through this book of lament, particularly geared around a, a moment in Israel's history as they had abandoned God for centuries. God had been sending prophets to warn them. They hadn't listened. God finally brings his judgment on the people of Israel and sends the Babylonians to overtake them, to invade their country, destroy the temples, and kill a whole number of people and lead the rest of them into exile them back in Babylon. And Lamentations is the book then of a poet, seems to be Jeremiah, he's not named, but it seems to be, uh, many scholars believe to be Jeremiah, writing a series of five different poems expressing the horror that he is seeing, not only in despair and destruction, but also what those circumstances are saying about God. A God who had promised a certain land to them. A God who had promised to be faithful to them. A God who had promised to dwell amongst them. And he looks out at a people with no land, a people with no temple, and a people with seemingly no future. So what does he do in the midst of his circumstances and the promises of God when they seem to uh, conflict with one another? Well, enter then this grace of lament. A song that God gives his people in the valley. A song for the night. A song for the suffering. Again, part of even living in the West is we're uncomfortable with the sorrow. We're uncomfortable with the pain. We want to bypass it. Oh, friends, in bypassing that and trying to just hurry through the sorrow of this life, we will short-circuit what God may want to do for us in the midst of our lament. And so as we've walked through this, we've seen there is a value in lamentations. There's a value in this book. Perhaps this book will give you words to say if you're in a season of suffering to show you the honesty that you can bring to God and to give you different words in your prayer that you didn't realize you could pray. Maybe it prepares you for when you will walk through a season of suffering. Friends, every single one of us walk through suffering because we live in a suffering world. We live in a broken Genesis 3 world. The value of Lamentations is also, it helps engage us and it helps equip us to be able to walk alongside those that are suffering. So maybe you're not suffering now, but it helps us to know how to walk alongside those in pain. There's so many things that I've learned through this book. There's just a handful of them quickly. I've been able to see more clearly the serious and destructive ends of sin, where sin is leading us. The reality that grace is only amazing because judgment is real. The brutal honesty that God invites us to in lament. That lament doesn't lead us to worship. Lament is worship. And be careful not to rush past the process of lament, not short-circuit what God is wanting to do in my heart and the healing that's extended in lament, that hope springs from truth that is embraced, particularly truth about our relationship to God and his relationship with us, that he really loves us and he really isn't changing his mind. Often the most precious truths and sweetest communion with God happen in lament and suffering, not in mountaintop experiences, in the wilderness, not in a garden. It's often in the darkest valleys where we are then keenly aware that our shepherd still hasn't left us 
when we need him so desperately, we will find he is still God with us. There's still green pastures ahead. There's still a table waiting prepared by his abundant goodness for us. To embrace lament as a song that he has given us to sing in the dark nights of the soul. That God reaches us even there. And so many more things. And now as we turn to this final chapter, we'll see how this book ends. This fifth poem. And this fifth chapter stands unique from the other four. All the other four books... Um, have been patterned after an acrostic, a Hebrew acrostic, taking uh, the letter of the Hebrew alphabet and every subsequent letter, the verse begins with that letter all the way through. But in chapter 5, that is now gone. That structure, that order that the poet brought in the midst of chaos is now exploded. Uh, it seems as though that the, the order the poet was attempting to bring into his chaotic reality is now gone here in chapter 5. He can no longer hold it together. Uh, there is some familiar themes of destruction and despair. But again, this chapter stands unique. It is the, a higher concentration of requests in this chapter. Where the others more so are, are mentioning the reality of the circumstances that they are in. This chapter is the most request-heavy chapter. Saying things and asking things of God. And in particular, we see three different requests, three different prayers the poet says as this book comes to a close. And these three prayers are connected by the address directly to the Lord, or your translations may say, O Lord. You see that in verse 1, verse 19, and verse 21. And here are the prayers. Lord, remember what has happened to us. You, Lord, are enthroned forever. Verse 19. And verse 21. Lord, bring us back to yourself so we may return. These are the three requests as the poet turns from looking at his circumstances, lamenting the reality of his circumstances, and now turning his eyes to God and requesting something of him. Lord, remember what has happened. Lord, you are enthroned forever. Lord, bring us back to yourself so we may return. Each of those prayers were based on the poet's knowledge of who God is. He knew that the God that he cried out to, the God that he directed these three prayers is a God who remembers, a God who reigns, and a God who restores. He knew that about God, and so he was able to pray those three things to God. And those three prayers give us the structure, or three points for the sermon today. We will see a God who remembers, verses 1 through 18, a God who reigns, verses 19 and 20, and a God who restores, verses 21 and 22. Verse a God who remembers. Now look as we read verses 1 through 18. The poet writes this. Lord, remember what has happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless, and our mothers are widows. We must pay for the water we drink. Our wood comes at a price. We are closely pursued. We are tired and no one offers us rest. We made a treaty with Egypt and with Assyria to get enough food. Our ancestors sinned. They no longer exist, but we bear their punishment. Slaves rule over us. No one rescues us from them. We secure our food at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is as hot as an oven from the ravages of hunger. Women have been raped in Zion, virgins in the cities of Judah. Princes have been hung up by their hands. Elders are shown no respect. Young men labor at millstones. 
Boys stumble under the loads of wood. The elders have left the city gate. The young men, their music. Joy has left our hearts. Our dancing has turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is sick. Because of these, our eyes grow dim. Because of Mount Zion, which lies desolate and has jackals prowling in it. The poet begins with again describing a situation we've heard consistently in this book. But you notice at the very beginning in verse 1, he's describing his disgrace. It's an important word here in this chapter. And as he describes his disgrace, he goes from one thing to the next quickly. These verses are shorter structured than the others in the rest of the book. It's almost like a rapid fire catalog of disgrace walking through uh, their experience. Uh, one commentator uh, summed it up this way, that these people in verse 2 were people invaded, verse 3 abandoned, verse 4 economically depressed, Verse 5, exhausted. Verse 6, dependent. Verse 7, disciplined. Verse 8, experiencing societal upheaval. Verse 9, desperate. Verse 10, sickened. Verse 11, assaulted. Verse 12, dishonored. Verse 13, oppressed. Verses 14 and 15, mourning. Verse 16, ashamed. Verse 17, grieved. And verse 18, devastated. That this is the expression of their disgrace. Walking through quickly. And the summary of it is that because of this, our heart is sick. You resonate with a description like that? Has your heart ever felt sick? That there is this, this brokenness that you feel deep within your soul that's been altered. You feel this heart sickness because of the suffering and the sorrow that you walk through. Well, friends, this was the experience of the poet labeling this disgrace. And so what is his prayer to God? It may seem strange to us, but his prayer is simple. Remember. Remember. Now, why might that seem strange to us? Because when we, I don't, I don't know about you, when I read it, it may on face value seem like God has forgotten. He needs to be reminded. Maybe you've seen this other places in the Bible. God, remember, remember what you've done. Other places, God remembers people. It's like, oh, well, he's just forgotten. Maybe it's like me. Yesterday, um, uh, yesterday evening, my wife and I got into an argument because I had literally forgotten something that I had said like six hours previously. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. What, I, well, what do you mean? I, I, didn't, this, I never thought about this. She was like, you told me this this afternoon. I did, I did do that, didn't I? She's like, remember what you said. Oh, yeah, I remember because I forgot. Is that what's happening here? Is the poet going, uh, God, remember like the whole promise thing? You never leave us, forsake us, right? That kind of stuff. Just remember that. Well, this is not what's happening. That's not what is happening whenever the poet comes to God and calls him to remember. Oh, this word is a huge word in the Bible. It's a huge word because it pops up at a number of places. I want to make sure we understand what the request here is. And to maybe give you another word to use within your vocabulary as you pray. This word remember is very important because it comes to play particularly in God's relationship to his people. Often in situations whenever things aren't going good. The very first time it's introduced is in Genesis chapter 8. 
God looked out and saw the wickedness of the world. The world had rebelled and turned away from him. And so he brings a a flood, this worldwide flood, as an expression of his wrath and his judgment. But he saves a family, Noah and his family. Puts them on an ark. Other animals are placed on that ark. And then as the waters rise, that ark rises and Noah and his family are there. But they are, after days, after weeks, still on this ark looking out at water with no land. I don't know if you've ever placed yourself in that place in Noah's experience. After weeks looking out and just going, I'm on this boat that I built, never built a boat before, but here we are, and there's no land anywhere, and I'm hoping that this water is going to go down. In the midst of God's judgment, Moses, Noah, have I been saying Moses this whole time? Because, I okay, Noah, not Moses. I don't know, who knows? Anyway, it's early. Uh, Noah, not Moses. Noah on the ark is wondering what's going to happen. And then the turning point, chapter 8, verse 1. God remembered Noah. God wasn't around doing other things. Like, oh, that's right, Noah, I forgot about him. He's on the ark. No, this was an expression that God's promise to Noah was now going to lead to action. After verse 8, the waters begin to fall, land is seen, and Noah walks out to a new life. The turning point was that he remembered. We see the same in the book of Exodus as God's people, the nation of Israel, are led to Egypt at the end of Genesis. At the beginning of Exodus, though, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had forgotten about all that had happened with Egypt and the people of Israel, and he enslaved them and began to put them to hard labor, began to oppress them. We get to the very end of Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. It says, The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And then God sends Noah and um, Moses. There it is. Now he sends Moses. I need to get out of the Old Testament real quick. God sends Moses to deliver them, his people, from Egypt. And the turning point, verse 23, chapter 2, God remembered. This is whenever his promises then changed to action. God did not forget his promise. God was not busy doing other things. God is never slow to act. He always acts at the right time. His remembrance is whenever that promise is put into action. When God remembers, his promises become actions. To his people. Oh, friends, I hope this word, this may give you a new word to add in your prayer. To pray that God would remember who he is and remember what he has promised. This is not holding a fist up to God going, God, you have forgotten. Who are you? Remember. You're so bad at remembering. No, this prayer to remember is saying, God, remember who you are. You never act contrary to who you are. And remember what you have promised. Oh, and would your promises begin to act here in my life and in the midst of my circumstances? This is a good corrective for us as well, this prayer to call God to remember. Because it makes sure that we're not asking for things that he hadn't promised. Well, we do that a lot, don't we? Well, let me just, if I believe enough, I go out, I'm going to walk into that dealership, and they're just going to hand me a new car. I'm going to believe it. I have enough faith. I'm going to get that new job. I'm going to go out and buy a lottery ticket. And this lottery ticket is going to be the one because, God, I'm asking for it. I'm believing. I've read The Persistent Widow. I'm going to keep coming to your door. And you're going to give me what I request just because I keep on asking. That's not remembering who God is or what he's promised. God never promised to give you a lottery ticket. 
He never promised to get you a new car. He never promised to get you the highest paying job in the world. What he has promised is himself. And sometimes it may take us going through the valley to realize the treasure we have in him. Sometimes God's too gracious to give us what we ask him. This word, remember though, is a good corrective for us to go, God, remember, I'm asking you to be who you have revealed yourself to be and to do what you have promised. Remember. That word, remember, is a great word in lament. It doesn't cast an accusation to God. It is a faith-filled cry for hurting people. Oh, Lord, remember what has happened to us. To say that God remembers is to say that he is doing exactly what he promised. He never forgets. Even in the face of suffering and feeling forgotten or the expression, being in the midst of the expression of God's just anger or rebellion and sin, God never forgets his people and he never forgets his promises. He is a God who remembers. And because that is true, the poet then knows he can come to pray, God, remember what has happened to us. He's not only a God who remembers, he's a God who reigns. Verses 19 and 20. Again, you get to the end of this long description of their disgrace, one after the other, a, a Rolodex of disgrace. And it comes to the end, and there is a sudden turn in verse 19. I mean, it's a, a huge pivot, similar to chapter 3. When it gets down to the very lowest, some of your translations there in verse 19 may have that conjunction, but it's the second time we see that conjunction here in this book. The earlier in chapter 3 and here in chapter 5. It represents a pivot within lament. But here is my circumstance. This is what is happening. But you, Lord, are enthroned forever. Your throne endures from generation to generation. Why do you continually forget us, abandon us for our entire lives? There's this pivot that happens here in verse 19 with this proclamation, this prayer, this praise. You, Lord, are enthroned forever. The second prayer in chapter 5 is focused on the sovereign rule of God over all things, which is both an intriguing and an important reality in light of all that he's gone through in verses 1 through 18. It's not necessarily what you think he would turn to next. Oh, friends, the circumstances of life have a narrative to them, don't they? The things in our life are telling us something about ourselves, about our experience, and about God. They're trying to convince us of something. We have an enemy who's actively accusing and trying to whisper things in our ears, trying to sow seeds of doubt about God's character and who he is. And as those narratives come what will we then stand on in response to them? What will we call to mind? We can seeing in chapter 3, the poet brings calling to mind the faithful love of God, his mercies that are new every morning, his faithfulness. He brings to mind in chapter 3 the reality of God's love to him. In the midst of sorrow, he calls to mind love. That's his primary thing. That's the, the whole point of Lamentations there, if you remember chapter 3, leads to that reality, God's faithful love. That's the foundation. That's what's at the forefront of his mind in the midst of suffering. God still loves me and God isn't going anywhere. But there's a second truth that this poet brings to his mind here in chapter 5. And that is that God is sovereign over even the destruction that he's looking out at. 
whenever his circumstances were telling him a narrative that life is out of control, or maybe even worse, that God is not in control, he would bring to mind this truth, but you, O Lord, know, are enthroned forever. We've seen this throughout the book. If you've been with us the last four weeks, consistently the poet knows that Babylon may have been the means of God's judgment, but God was the one ultimately behind it. These Babylonians were sent by God as his judgment for their sin. He was the one sovereignly over this whole book. God was not overdoing something else and going, oh no, the Babylonians slipped through my detection. What are we going to do now? God was the one sovereign over it. And here he brings this to mind to bring him comfort. God may have been the means of judgment, but God was ultimately behind it. This verse 19 is short, but it is so important. It acknowledges there is more happening here than simply pointless sorrow and meaningless destruction. My friends, this is more than just another page in the annals of history. Verse 19 is proclaiming through tears and sorrow God's sovereign supremacy over all things, including pain. It recognizes that the very center of the universe is the throne of God. And that throne is occupied by a king that will never leave. This is the very central reality. That doesn't answer any questions. In fact, it raises some other ones. Well, if God is sovereign over everything, why are these things happening? And friends, we don't have an answer for everything. In fact, I think this is one of the things to me that helps encourage me in my own faith. If I had an answer to everything about who God is, what kind of creator would he be? I am a creature. And if I can wrap my mind entirely around everything that he's done and who he is, that's not much of a creator. There is a distance there. There is mystery. And there are questions that are left unanswered. Oh, friends, the goal of faith is not to answer our questions. The goal of faith is to produce in us a greater trust in Him, a greater treasuring of Him. And that's why sometimes God leaves the questions unanswered. There will be a day when we stand before Him in glory where we will see what He's done. But here, we don't get the promise to all those questions. You see that even in the book of Job. Someone who went through suffering was distinctly different from the book of Lamentations. Their suffering was deserved. It was judgment. It was God's judgment for those who had rebelled against him. Job was innocent suffering. There was nothing he had done that had inflicted this discipline. It was the innocent suffering living in a broken world. At the end of the book, Job's standing before God and God doesn't say, Job, here's what happened. Let me explain to you everything that happened. Here's what went on. Satan came. He wanted to sift you like wheat. He was like, I bet I can take Job down. I was like, no, you can't. He's like, yes, I can. I was like, go for it. And look, here you are. You're still standing. And Job, your story will be a testimony and a witness and an encouragement and a comfort to so many of my people for centuries who walk through suffering. Job, this is, you'll be used so greatly. We don't get that in Job. God doesn't answer those questions. Job does eventually see that when he stands in glory with God, but he doesn't get those answers there. And so it does raise questions, but friends, we don't get answers to all those questions. What this does do for the poet and what this does do for us is this sovereignty injects a sort of contentedness in our life as we walk through seasons of sorrow, a sort of ballast for our souls that keeps us from tipping too far one way or the other, that we can say, God, I don't know what you are doing, but I know that you are in control. You are the king on the throne and that you are good. And that you're working all things together for the good of those who loved you and are called according to your purpose. So I don't understand it. I wish it was something else. 
Give me, let me pray these psalms of lament, these songs of lament to you through it all. But Lord, I can trust you because I know that you're sovereign over all. It's not meaningless. It's not pointless. You are forming Christ in me and you are glorifying your name. And so I'll trust you. It gives us this ballast to be able to sing, it is truly well with my soul. And Lamentations isn't the only place we see a poet pull for this in the midst of suffering. Psalm 102 is labeled like this. Here's the title of Psalm 102. A prayer of a suffering person who is weak and pours out his lament before the Lord. And you heard Spencer read earlier, Psalm 102, verses 1 through 12. You heard just one after the other, the reality of that pain. Here's, again, just a few things that the psalmist mentioned. My heart is suffering, withered like grass. I even forget to eat my food. Have you ever been in so much pain that you forget to eat? Well, friends, there's a psalm for you. He goes on and says, I eat ashes like bread and mingle my drinks with tears. Every cup he holds become mingled and laced with his own tears. Continues on, my days are like a lengthening shadow and I wither away like grass. And then he turns in verse 12 and reaches for this. But you, Lord, are enthroned forever. It's the same truth, the same reality. God's sovereign rule doesn't neatly answer all of life's questions. Oh, friends, it is important to me and it should be important to you. Because if God is not in control, what does that reality say? That suffering becomes intolerable, meaningless, and hopeless. If God can't do anything about what I'm in right now, or if he didn't allow it somehow for my good and for his glory, then this thing just becomes meaningless. It doesn't answer every question. Again, just look at verse 20, the very next verse. Why do you continually forget us and abandon us for our entire lives? This truth of God's sovereignty doesn't just wrap up our suffering and be like, oh, this is fine. I don't have to cry anymore. God's in control. There are still hard questions as we answer this, but that reality then begins to settle into our soul and brings to us this song of contentment. And that we can then rest knowing that even with hard questions, this truth remains the same. God is enthroned forever. He is the king forevermore. I think Corey Tim Boom, a Holocaust survivor, uh, captures this well. She made it through the concentration camps. A number of her family were killed in the concentration camps. And she said this. She said, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away your, your ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. My friends, there is an engineer at the front. There is someone driving us somewhere. And there will be times we'll go through dark tunnels. We can't see. We'll be scared. It'll be shaking. We don't know what's going on. And in that seat, remember, there's someone at the front. There is an engineer that's taking us somewhere. In every dark tunnel, the engineer is still driving you somewhere. In every dark valley, the shepherd is still leading you somewhere. He has not forgotten. And he is still in control. He is a God who reigns. And finally, we see that he is also a God who restores. Verses 21 and 22. Third prayer. The poet says, Lord, bring us back to yourself so we may return. Renew our days as in former times, unless you have completely rejected us and are intensely angry with us. I, I, I love and I hate how the book of Lamentations ends. I want it to end with verse 21. 
That's what I want. The conclusion of all of this, in the midst of looking at the destruction of sin, the conclusion of verse 21, Lord, bring us back to yourself so we may return and renew our days as in former times, period, on into Ezekiel. But we get verse 22. And I think it's good that we get verse 22. Again, because I think we try to run too quickly to try to wrap up with neat little bows, suffering and sorrow. Let's just get past it as quickly as we can. Oh yeah, God, you're doing something. You're enthroned forever. But the reality of verse 22, the reality of brokenness is still there. And this is how the poet ends Lamentations. Unless you have completely rejected us and are intensely angry with us. You see in verse 19 and 21, both of those prayers, there is then still the experience that they're walking through. The brokenness of their world, still experiencing God's anger and his wrath poured out then on his people. And maybe even some level of doubt. Commentators are kind of are split on what exactly is the spirit of verse 22, unless, even if, what, what exactly is the poet getting at here? Perhaps there's just this humble hope we sang about earlier in that one song, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, this, this humble hope. Oh Lord, restore us unless unless you've completely rejected us and are intensely angry with us. There seems to be some level of uncertainty there in 22, which has led many Israelites, similar to us, they go back and in their tradition and reading through and singing Lamentations, they will go back and repeat verse 21 again after verse 22, and that's how they'll end it. But I think we need to honor the poet's intention inspired by God to end here in verse 22 in the reality that suffering doesn't end neatly often. And some of you know this all too well, that we are in this Genesis 3 world, and sometimes we end still with stories that are not wrapped up. And so what the thrust, though, of this final prayer is, once you notice, it is that the Lord would restore us, would bring us back. Translation may say restore, or bring us back, it's the same thing. Lord, restore us back to yourself so we may be restored. That understanding of being restored, it means to be brought back, to return. That's why translation may say that. The sense of coming back to something in a better condition or state, being brought back and returning. This is the final prayer, Lord, to restore us. But notice what is at the heart of this restoration. The poet is not saying, God, restore us back to these days of Israel Whenever it was like it was with David and Solomon, when the temple was in all of its glory, when Israel was a beacon, whenever leaders of other nations were coming to the kings of Israel asking for advice, would you bring us back to our former days of glory? That's not the thrust of the restoration. Notice in verse 21 what the heart of the restoration is. What the poet wants to be brought back to is God himself. Lord, bring us back to yourself. We want you. All of the idols that we have been leaning on have finally been kicked out from underneath us and we have nothing else. We've seen their emptiness. We've seen their destruction. And God, we want you. Would you bring us back to yourself so that we may return? They get it. They're at the end. They get it. He is the treasure. Lord, restore us back to you. And what will happen when we come to you? Whenever we, restore, we are restored and returned back to God, we experience renewal. We are refreshed. We are renewed as, as in our former times. This is the heart of the prayer here in verse 21. The author has gotten it. God's people have understood 
God delivered them over to be destroyed by their enemies so that he could save them from themselves. And they cried out, Lord, bring us back to yourself so we may return. And this promise of restoration and renewal is the promise that God extends to his people anytime they come to him. A famous Psalm, Psalm 23, again says the same thing, verse 3. Our good shepherd renews my life. Even in the midst of a dark valley, even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, there's this promise of renewal and restoration given to his people because it is experienced by being next to him, by finding our treasure in him. There is this promise to be renewed today. And there's a promise to be renewed whenever Jesus comes back. This is our great hope and our great restoration. And friends, may this give us some different language to pray. I don't know if you've ever prayed for God to remember. I don't know if you call to mind the truth that he is seated on the throne right now. I don't know if you've called to mind this prayer, God, would you restore me, bring me back to yourself. Oh, this is the prayer, not just, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. This is, this is the prayer that God has given even for you to pray. God, I want to come back to you. I want to, I want to return to you. And here's what's amazing. And maybe you're like, oh man, but what am I going to have to do when I get there? Am I going to have to show him how sorry I am? Make up for all the stuff I've done in my past. You come up with guilt, trepidation, hesitation. I know when you return to him, when you are restored to him, you are restored to a better condition and state that you were previously in. You will find a father waiting with open arms, a father who loves to forgive, a father who is filled with mercy, a father who will forgive all of your sin and welcome you in and count you no longer as a rebel, but as a son and as a daughter who welcomes you into his family with nothing left to pay because he paid for it all on the cross. And giving you an inheritance now that we can never even begin to grasp until we enter into eternity. And every year, every century, every millennia, we'll get a greater grasp of the treasure that we have in Christ as we experience this restoration back to God himself. And you don't have to do anything to earn it except to come to him, to trust in him, to say, Jesus, I want that. I can't do it, but I see that you've done it for me. And so I'm going to follow you. I don't know what all that means, but I'm going to follow you. I want to trust in you that you are really who you said that you are. You're my savior and you're the king. And I'm, I'm ready imperfectly, but I'm ready to go after you. And friend, if that's you today, and I don't have to try to convince you, you can feel it right now in your heart going, this is the day to follow this king, that I can come to him and find life. I've found destruction. I've found sorrow. I've found all this stuff in life that isn't fulfilling me like it had promised me. And you see now this invitation from your creator saying, come back to me and you want to follow. And friend, today you can, if you come to him, and you will find this restoration and renewal. Because this prayer and lamentation, these three things that we see what God is like, I think the poet knew it based on the inspiration of the Spirit and on the, based on the promise of who God was. Oh, but we have something even more clear than that. We have these promises personified. We have each of these things seen clearly in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The poet ends... Oh, unless you have completely rejected us and are intensely angry with us. Friend, in Christ, there is no unless. We do not have to wonder 
Has God forgotten us? Is he angry with us? Are we too far gone? There is no more unless in Christ. He is the perfect picture. Jesus is the clearest expression of a God who remembers, a God who reigns, and a God who restores. I love Luke's gospel begins in chapter 1. You know how Luke's gospel begins with Gabriel telling Zechariah about this baby that was going to be born. It's a little bit different than the other gospels. And you know what Zechariah's name means? God remembers. Later in verse 72, this is what he said. In Luke chapter 1, verse 72, Zechariah says, God has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant. Do you know the reality of God remembering the greatest expression of God remembering where his promises were put into action? It's seen in the birth of the Messiah. In Jesus Christ, it's there that we see in Christ all of the promises of God are yes in him. Oh, when we see that child, when we see that man nailed on the cross, when we see the empty tomb, we know we serve a God who remembers. We worship a God who never forgets, who never leaves us, but he is always there. And Jesus is the one who has put those promises into action. Oh, he is a God who remembers. But not only that, he is a God who reigns. That we see in Jesus a king, a king of kings, a king forevermore. Not only in Revelation when Jesus comes back and he's seated on that throne and crowns are thrown at his feet and he comes back as the great ruler of all, but even when he was here in his ministry, think about the things that he could do. He walked on water. You know why? Because he made the water and the water had to do whatever he told it to do. You ever tried to walk on water? You can't do it. But Jesus can because he's the king. He thinks a thought, he says a word, and sickness is reversed. He says a word, and a man who'd been dead for days walks out of his tomb. You know why? Because death has to obey its master. Death has seen the king, and they know, I've got no argument here. I've got to listen and let go of my prisoner. Because it met the king of kings. This is Jesus. And not only did he say it to death, but he also conquered death himself. The man who said, I will die and I will be raised again, did exactly that. That the reality, the enemy that faces all of us at the end of our life, death itself, that we cannot overcome. Our great king has come, the shepherd from Bethlehem, to run to the battle lines and fight this enemy in our place. This king who has fought for us, defeating our enemy, and said, I am the one who holds the keys to all things, the authority in all the earth, and I stand as the king of kings. When we see Jesus, we see a God who reigns. Oh, and we see in him a God who restores, a God who brings us back, a God that promises renewal and restoration. Today, when we come to him, that renewal is promised today. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says we are renewed today by day. There's renewal and restoration that God gives us today. Even in the midst of suffering, which was what Paul was talking about in the context of 2 Corinthians 4. There's restoration and renewal offered to us today. That when we come to Jesus, we'll find rest for our souls today. Peace today. Victory and joy today. Oh, but there is also renewal and restoration coming. That we see that when he comes, Jesus describes it this way in Matthew 19, 28. He calls it the renewal of all things. That when he comes, he will restore all that is broken. 
and he can redeem, restore, and renew all that has been broken. And he stands over all the suffering in this world and can restore it today and will one day remove it forever. And we're able then to see this God who stands sovereignly above it all and is working it all and redeeming and restoring the stories that we're walking through now. Even now, for our own good and for his glory, one day he will come, though, and end all that is wrong. All the sadness will come undone. Death will be destroyed. Tears will be wiped away. Cancer will be a diagnosis that we will never hear again. Heart attack and heart disease will be no more. My job as a preacher will be done because we'll be seeing the word himself. Garrett's job will continue for all of eternity, singing. <laughs> I've got a temporary job here. When he comes, he brings with him the renewal of all things, the restoration of all things. But even now, he offers restoration to us if we'd come to him. Oh, when we see Jesus, we see a God who restores. Friends, this is our great hope and suffering that we see in Christ, that God is with us and that God is for us. It doesn't answer all the questions, but God didn't mean to. He has given us his greatest treasure, though, himself, growing our trust in him. And as we end this book in Lamentations, may we end with that same chord, those same prayers. And we can have the confidence to pray to this God because we can see clearly in the person of Jesus. Our God is a God who remembers, a God who reigns, and a God who restores. Let's pray.